0: your viewpoint is informed by far more context than whoever it is that you're speaking with. And that context is allowing you to ignore the parts of the data set that don't matter or focus on the key takeaways and you don't need it all pretty and polished because you've been in the data for that long. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Walker, Head of Insights at Carta. Now his mission is weaving data into brand storytelling for the next generation of company owners. And on a platform like Carta that has over 30,000 plus startups on their platform, generating information and insights that he can use to create stories and understanding and context for people in the startup and venture studio space, I couldn't help but have him on the podcast. I'd also highly encourage go look at his work on LinkedIn. Him and his team post some of the most informative, insightful and engaging diagrams, graphics, and visualizations that I've seen in years, all based around the startup ecosystem and venture building in particular. I've been wanting to get him on the show for a while. I'm excited to have him. So before we dive into what he's doing today, let's talk a little bit about how he started his journey and some of the twists and turns
0: as it's gone for him. I'm at the head of insights at Carter right now. Before that, I worked at this startup called Public Relay in that classic early startup sort of thing. I was employed over 12 or 13, something like that. And so everyone did everything. You know, I was hired as an analyst. The business was focused on media intelligence for the Fortune 500, but quickly sort of managed a team of data analysts and then integrated Tableau and then got burned out of data and ran a product marketing team. So I think that there were multiple times within those first couple of years where I felt as though okay, I'm hitting a little bit of a wall here. Like what else can I do for the business? Which I think is the main advantage of startups. There's always the chance that you're going to hit it big. But in practice, I think the responsibility and adaptability that you have to have to survive in a startup is more important oftentimes than the equity you receive. But I do remember this one moment where, candidly, I was very frustrated with the quality of reports that we were putting out not because the data was bad but because i thought the graphics were so poor and i remember going online and trying to teach myself graphic design in 48 hours over a weekend and i came back and you know i was very full of myself and said hey look i've got this all figured out we're going to change up these graphics and then people were like well that looks a little bit better so why don't you do this exclusively from now on for the whole business and so i got to be like designing Oftentimes data, but other things in either PowerPoint or Figma or Sketch or places like that. I hadn't considered a career in design or anything like that when I was going through school and it just opened my eyes up to the fact that I felt much more strongly about the aesthetic than most of my peers who were on the data side. And it was like, well, maybe I need to explore that. Maybe I shouldn't just shut that side down and just focus on the numbers. Maybe I need to be convincing with the graphics that I'm putting out. So that was the big one. And then there was another one where I just kind of smacking my head against the keyboard for a while. So I had done this Tableau analytics team for a couple of years and I was just at the end of my rope with it. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. And so the CEO was kind enough to say, okay, well look across the business and then find somewhere else where you can be helpful. So I took up product marketing and that was like the combination of data and product marketing, I think is basically the foundation of my work today. So it was awesome that I was in a place that I was able to jump between these responsibilities.
1: Yeah, look, I love these examples where people just sort of pursue their intellectual curiosity. Sometimes you open those boxes and it doesn't lead to anything, but the moments when you do open them, uh, this whole new world emerges, is a fascinating opportunity and great way for people to learn or grow or emerge into whatever they want to do in the next iteration of themselves. For folks, who are probably learning a bit about you. I was absolutely blown away by just the quality of content that you're turning out at the moment to visualize very complex things in the venture space. You know, I often sort of find myself trying to explain like what different things are, but there's nothing that brings people together, like a really strong visual that gives (laughs) great insight, that has data, but an aesthetic and a visual that people go, oh, I get the message here. Let's start off a little bit with just the design part that you sort of started to discover about yourself. Right, well, You've you mentioned a lot of these fantastic tools that are out there now from Figma to Sketch. What was sort of your first steps, if you will, into that space to start understanding what's better ways that I could visualize my data?
0: To be quite honest, I think it began actually with even more common tools like Excel and PowerPoint. I think that's where most people probably start with data is that you're going to work at a spreadsheet of some kind, and then you're going to want to build the takeaway, and that takeaway is often in chart form from that spreadsheet. So that's where it began for me as well. And then again, at this old startup public relay, part of the product that we were actually building were visualizations. Our core audience was pr communication communications folks. And as you can imagine, those folks are wonderful, but they're not very data inclined as a rule. They're far more words than they are numbers. So we had to drill down and drill down and drill down and make the charts as clear as possible. We were having trouble doing that with PowerPoints and other places. So we went on a big tour of the various business intelligence tools that were available at the time. I probably trialed 10 or 12 of them, SciSense, Tableau, Looker, all sorts of stuff. And now there's actually a whole other wave of BI tools that have come out only in the last couple of years. And then there's starting to be generative AI versions of some of them too that are really cool. Not quite there yet. But we hit on Tableau for two reasons. One, we felt as though it was a tool that you can get started with. It's difficult to get great at, but it's not too difficult to get up to a level of competency. So it was a good like early training wheels thing until you get to the high levels And then secondly, it just has a lot more visual diversity than some of the other programs like Looker and elsewhere. So now my workflows, such as they are, will be dancing through a lot of the data, write some SQL, pull some numbers from the databases, and then just play around with them in Tableau for a while until we hit on a graphic or a visual representation of something that sort of clicks. The last part of this flow, I think is really important, which is you take the graphic from Tableau and I put it into Figma. I love Figma and have for a while, primarily because it's got all the tools that everybody else does, but it's free for most teams, unless you're, you know, working with a big design group, which is unbelievable how much value you get out of a free Figma subscription. And so you put it into Figma and then you can add all of the things that make it your own. So you can do all the titling and the labeling and the logos and the extended URLs, but you can also add annotations to the chart or text right on there. And a lot of times that level of flexibility in Figma is what makes these graphics sing because a lot of the time, if you're looking at a chart, you know, off the bat, what is the audience probably going to ask when they see this chart? So if you can just put that in text, if you can answer their unsaid question in text on the chart itself, then they're much more likely to share it. They're much more likely to use it because. They're not like waiting for you in the comment to respond to what's going on here. I always take that framework of what are the things that people probably going to ask when they see this? And if I can answer it for them in the graphic, then sort of I'm a step ahead.
1: The super insights here as well, like for folks that are starting to go around this. So you mentioned this moment that it just clicks I'm envisaging you pulling out like a raw data dump and just numbers all over a spreadsheet and there's obviously some a nice understanding of what you're looking at, but how do you get to this process of going from the raw data to starting to, at least refine, if you will, what's going to be the aha, the moment that's going to click when people see this? What are some of your thinking about how you sort of sift through these like raw information and then turn it again? Which I will continue to tell people to do: go to your LinkedIn and just look at some of the fantastic stuff that you're turning out at the team at the moment.
0: Yeah, there's two types of things that we build at Carta specifically that I think give you a bit of a flavor of how you can do it one of two ways. The first is probably what people think of when they think of data content or big reports that are full of numbers, which is you have a conception going in what it is you're writing this report on. To take the venture space as an example, we put out a state of private markets report every quarter. And that has a lot of the things you'd expect it to have if you just heard that name. You know, we've got valuations by stage. So for seed stage, for series A, for series B, et cetera. You've got how much are founders raising? You've got how much are investors getting in each round? These questions that if you just sat down for 30 minutes and wrote them out, you'd probably come up with 10 or 12 of the same questions about what to do. And in that case, the goal when you're creating graphics is not necessarily to wow someone with this incredible thing but merely to just make it clean, simple, easy, and answer the same question over time. The reason they're reading this report is because they probably had an idea of what valuations were last quarter, and they'd like to see how they changed for this quarter. So they can see, hey, what's the market doing right now? As I go out and talk to investors, if I'm a founder, what should I be asking for? So the goal there on our side is not to create the most whiz-bang graphic ever. It's to answer clear questions. But then there's the other kind of work that we do, which I find it's candidly, a little bit more interesting, which is the sort of discovery exploration phase. And again, some of this depends on the tools that you're using. One of the reasons why I like Tableau is that it allows me to dance through some of these data points more quickly. And also, I don't need to know what I'm looking for necessarily at the outset. A good example is one of the first things I do when I get into a data set is often just plot it as a scatter plot. But the reason that scatter plots are nice is because medians, averages, et cetera, these things hide distributions really well. And you can have the exact same looking chart, but the data set that's underlying it is vastly different. It's a barbell versus crowded in the middle. Those can give you the same medians. So I will often just start with scatter plots, and that'll give me a sense of okay, what are the ranges in these things? Where should I be looking for differences? And then you're applying filters to them. So you say, okay, I'd like to look at how much equity an advisor receives and you get a number. So you get one median number and you say, well, that's not very useful. What if we broke it out by year? What if we broke it out by stage? What if we broke it out by industry? And then once you start building those charts, you can quickly see whether or not each one of them is clearly distinct or if they all kind of funnel to one good looking graphic. Honestly, one of the advantages that I have at Carta is that we are a big enough player in the startup ecosystem that we are being asked questions like this Every single day, there's never a shortage of questions to answer. It's really just, okay, once you have the question, how do you answer it in the most compelling graphic? And sometimes I find this funny on LinkedIn. Sometimes I will get pushback on some of these graphics because they are not exactly what Edward Tuft or other people would have recommended if you read the books. I've read the books. I love all of the data of his books. I also think that there's something about social and other places where it's like, look, what you're trying to do is capture attention, not build the point-perfect graphic for each one of these things. And if you captured attention in the right way, then people will continue to follow you and you can teach a lot of things. But I always find it funny when people push back on the use of bubbles versus squares versus lines. It's like the goal is to give people information.
1: I actually had the pleasure of going to Edward Tuff's seminar in San Francisco probably about five years ago, which in itself was like, one of the most fascinating seminars I'd ever been to because yeah. it's really a continuous lecture for eight hours. I think he maybe stopped to like take a drink of water or pause for a moment, but it was in this massive, it was in a hotel, huge, huge room. Like he'd fill the room with yeah. easily 1,000, like 1,500 people. And it was just a constant run of all visualizations that he created in his various different books. And then almost like, a narrated monologue as he would talk through like why this visualization matters in this sort of context. It was almost like sitting in a movie theater and watching a show rather than someone sort of sitting down and going, right, in instance X, you should use circles, bubbles, and squares. Here's why, like, it was really kind of surreal, but it's so funny, the internet as well. People love to jump in and dive in and cause the debate and so forth.
0: Yes, which, you have to welcome it if you're putting out stuff in LinkedIn. You know, the commenters that are negative on your graphic are attracting new eyeballs to the thing. So we thank them for their help on that. But it sounds like Edward might consider asking some questions of the audience next time that he, he talks. It was definitely special. <laughs> that's that's amazing.
1: Yeah. So this is fascinating about the visualization and the iteration that you go through there. And Thank you for being so open to share some of your techniques there. Then you've sort of moved into this product marketing role, right? Which sort of again nudges into a little bit of the discussion you're describing there. It's great to have this data, especially as senior leaders in company. You want to have that insight into how the company's performing, different aspects of it, year over year, different demographics, visually compelling insights, again, which just help run a business. But this transition, as you're describing, going into product marketing, helping people then sort of start to understand the benefits, the message telling the story behind just the raw information. So what were some of the things that helped you from when you were in public relay and then moving into a barometer, if that's all right? (laughs) Yep. What did you have to unlearn a little bit as you shifted from much more data insights driven, if you will, and design inspiration to actually communicating in a way that would help people understand the value of your product.
0: I think it's a completely underrated marriage of perspectives because as a data analyst just coming out of school, your world is numbers and you by default assume that everyone can follow the same story that you're seeing in the spreadsheet. And it's just not the case. And I think it's a useful thing to unlearn no matter where you are in business is just that your viewpoint is informed by far more context than whoever it is that you're speaking with. And that context is allowing you to ignore the parts of the data set that don't matter or focus on the key takeaways. And you don't need it all pretty and polished because you've been in the data for that long. But transitioning from a data analyst and then like leading a team of data analysts to product marketing, it took me a while. It took me probably six or seven months to get my feet back underneath me because i was trying to present all of this information to our customers and they were not following. I was probably pretty stubborn at the beginning saying why can't they get this it's so simple. But yeah, of the course. fault was yeah. certainly mine. Yeah. You know, it was my fault to say what are you doing like i needed to take a step back and say that the feedback that i'm getting from the market is that this is too complex or that there isn't a way to follow it naturally from thing to thing. So that was where you can go back into the lab and say, okay, we're going to do these charts and things differently. But I think it's actually a broader point than just build a different graphic. It's really about, and this is true for the work we do at Carta now, are you speaking the language of your audience in a way that feels completely natural to them? At Carta, we serve venture capitalists, we serve founders, we serve startup employees. All of those groups of people have varying levels of sophistication when it comes to the businesses that they're a part right of. on. You can't talk to a junior employee at a startup the same way that you talk to the founder, the same way that you start to an investor. And finding out those language differences, it serves your worldview to say, we're going to be able to speak to anyone who comes into the door in the way that they speak to themselves. And some of the data stuff, I think, again, it's iterative. You're not going to get it right the first time. But when you do hit on something, it feels great because you're like, okay, this is how we need to talk about this information to people trying to stay away from jargon and all the acronyms that come with startups and stuff like that. It can always be more complex, but if you make it simple to start with, then you get more people on the train with you as you move along.
1: Well, look, this is one of the things I think you're just knocking it out of the park at the moment. You know, I've seen a lot of the information that you're sharing. You can definitely see that yourself and your team are in a real flow state at the moment. You're bringing together these great insights that a platform like Carter can provide where you have a lot of people managing their cap tables on there. Their investment thesis, as you say, you've this fantastic well of information, but there is a different type of customer of that information. As you're describing, sophisticated and non-sophisticated investors, startup founders, and similarly, and yet I think you're finding this very great groove, if you will, where I'm seeing, like in our venture studio, we we're building a hundred companies. We've got people that have done 17 startups, had multiple exits, built right. companies, sell companies. We've people who are like first day on the job, straight out of university, and they don't even know what a word like equity even means. And we're constantly helping startups go through raising capital and setting their expectations and literally a huge amount of the information to even educate myself on. It feels like a lifelong journey.
0: Never yeah.
1: mind trying to help these early stage founders, many of them who this could be their first startup, they're not aware of a lot of the jargon also that exists in the industry of pre-money, post-money. You can make up a million things of just like these very terms that conflate and cause more ambiguity for people than just like the simplicity of what they're trying to do. And yet you're sort of like landing a lot of these at the moment. So let's pick one of the, sort of the examples that you've done Even recently, you mentioned the advisors. Those of people would love to be advisors in startups. And believe me, I've had my fair share of those experiences and have go in there thinking, yeah, you know, I'm going to help one call a month. I should have 1% of your company for doing that. (laughs) Founders like flipping the table when you say these things. So tell us a little (laughs) bit about how you went about sort of answering that question. For people who everyone would loves to say, I advise startups. I'm a startup advisor. But what does that really mean? Is the How active are you really? What's the expectations of what you're going to do? Are they yeah. giving you five shares? Or are they giving you like 1% of the company? So talk us through a little bit about how you went through that process as a sort of case study.
0: Barry, I think it's a great case study because behind the idea of paying, just take a step back, a lot of startups in the US and elsewhere will compensate advisors with company equity, actual ownership, as opposed to cash because they don't have any cash because they're just starting out. Or even they don't want to spend some cash for the ones that are funded. They'd rather not spend cash, they'd rather spend equity. And so that opens up this Pandora's box of questions about how much equity an advisor should receive. And you've touched on the key point there as we were going through. You said, am I on a phone call a month with these founders? Am I With them every day? Is this 10 hours of my time? Is it 50 hours of my time? Let alone the characteristics behind the advisor themselves. Are you a technical chemical expert at a university and you're advising a chemical startup? Or are you a marketer and it's a B2B SaaS startup and there's a fair few of us around? Where do you fall in all of these ranges? And I think the utility of this graphic that we put out, and this is actually true of most of the stuff we put out, it's not to say, Hey, founders! Here's the right answer, because there isn't a right answer. All of those criteria that we just outlined will have a very impact on what you pay these advisors. What we hear from founders all the time, though, is I feel like I'm getting screwed a little bit here, or like something is telling me that this advice that I'm hearing is yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally, I'm sure the the advisors feel that way too. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So this graphic shows little gradient bars for each stage, pre-seed, seed seed rounds, and series A, and then the median, the 25th percent and the 75th percent for advisor equity. So just as an example for a pre-seed company, so this is a company that hasn't raised any money from VCs yet, the median example, the median grants per advisor is 0.23% of the company, about a quarter of 1%. And if you read in the comments on this graphic, the reason I feel very confident about this data. Is because there are people that are saying it's too low and people that are saying it's are too high. But when you get both, you know you're onto something. So I love that. But it's true, you know, there's some comments in this graphic where from some well-known startup folks, and they're saying, look, I wouldn't accept less than 1%. It's like, of course you wouldn't. You've got a huge following. You're well known as this growth advisor. Like, you probably shouldn't accept that. And your negotiating power is higher than a lot of other startup advisors. But the the idea of the range is to say, look, this is what most companies are doing. And because Carta is at such a scale now that this data is from January 1st of last year to June of this year, and it's 20,000 advisor grants. So with an, a value that that's that high, I can be very confident that these ranges are reflective of what's happening on the ground. And then I hope that what's happening is advisors take this graphic, or founders take this graphic, to their next discussion with an advisor and say, hey, look, I understand you'd like half a percent of the company just to tell you that's higher than most advisors receive. What's the case? Why will you be worth more than most advisors? And then you can have that on a little bit more of a factual basis instead of just kind of putting your finger in the air.
1: Yeah, no, it's super. Just even to call back to that point you made about looking at a graphic and trying to anticipate the question that's going to come, Obviously, on our podcast here, we're talking, but just to give the listeners again, the graphic is put together. It says advisor equity ranges. How much do founders give advisors in equity? And then immediately under that, it speaks to the volume data: twenty thousand three hundred one U.S. grants from this time frame. So instantly, you can imagine if it was just a raw graphic and you showed these mm-hmm. ranges, people would be like, "Oh, that can't be true. I get paid more. I get paid less." But Again, this sort of subtle authority and the credibility of the graphic is built into it. Like, no, this is a large volume of a data set that you have confidence in, as you say. And sure, people might be inside the range, outside the range, but that starts to debate. I just think it's a great example of coming to life of some of the lessons that you've shared even along the way. I
0: think that point about making the data set that you're working with apparent to everyone at the outset. I should have mentioned this as like a tip for people building graphics. Like it is super valuable to get ahead of the question of what is your methodology? How much data are you working with? We are, I think, in the middle of a misinformation sort of age, like, drowning man. in data, drowning in good looking graphics that are based on 200 survey responses. And not to say that, you know, actually I have this conversation sometimes with people who reach out. And they want to start their own insights practice at their company. And one of the things that they tell me is, oh, yeah, but you're at Carta. You have a lot of data. I'm at tiny startup X. Like, we don't have any data. So what do we do? And I say that, look, more data is certainly better. But there is something to be said for just being incredibly transparent about the thing that you're working with. So if you have 200 responses in a survey, don't put that in the bottom of the methodology section on page six. Put it up front. And then people will trust that, hey, okay, this may only be 200 responses, but perhaps there's still value in it. People try to play games with the amount or like the quality of the stuff that they're working with. And consumers, and especially if they're your audience, which would be probably well versed in the thing that you're talking about, they're going to sniff that out. Just be upfront with the data that you're working with. And if people don't want to take your conclusion, that's fine.
1: Yeah, that's great. So the only thing I wanted to ask then is just getting started, as you said. So. It is a great tip for a classic question of, well, I don't have huge data sets to work with a great answer to sort of share there. What's maybe one other tip that the question you probably get asked the most when people reach out when they see these graphics and how you help people address it?
0: I think that there's a few questions that I'm asked about this sort of data content. The first question is, yeah, how do I build this? I'm actually writing a little substack. These days on how to build them. So you can actually see me go through the process Rupert. of building this in Tableau, taking it to the thing. It's called insightful with two L's dot But there's the sort of meta point, which I think a lot of people have trouble with, or at least don't consider as fully as they should, which is the reason to build data content like this is not because you can make a pretty graph. It's because there are questions out there in the marketplace that no one is answering for the people that you care about. So at Carto, we care about founders. We care about investors. They are asking a lot of questions. And the answers that they're getting are based on whatever happened most recently or whatever access their VC or whoever has to a limited amount of companies. So like we know we can be helpful because we are hearing these questions. So before you start building any graphics, just collect questions from across your business or across your audience scape. Go to Twitter, go to LinkedIn, go to other places, go to podcasts, and just listen. Like, what are people wondering about? And then see if you can answer one of those. If you can answer one, maybe you can answer two, and this sort of like builds on itself. But it always started with me at Carta and at the COVID Tracking Project too. It always just started with questions. And then if you can answer them in graphic form, I find that to be a little bit more compelling than just words, but I'm a nerd. So that's what I would go with.
1: All I can say, Peter, is keep nerding and keep sharing (laughs) because all you're turning out at the moment I said, especially for someone like myself in the venture space, it's invaluable and so helpful both to share with our founders as they're going on their journey, setting people's expectations, also giving me some guardrails, example, this advisor equity range and, you know, having informed conversations and that helps everybody over time. So in closing then, is there just one thing you would encourage people, you know, who maybe are thinking about going down this path, they're thinking like, I'd love to get into insights and data and product marketing. And what would be your one tip for folks as they might start down this journey?
0: Good question. I think the one tip that I'd have for marketers that want to start doing data is don't be scared off by the idea that business intelligence tools or graphics or even SQL is that hard. Like, you do difficult things in your jobs. I find this in marketers, there's a little bit of maybe excess humbleness or, oh, you know, data is so tough and only smart people can do it. It's definitely
1: a limiting belief. I see that every day. Yeah, I suffer from it myself at times. There's no doubt about it. Yeah,
0: yeah. hundred percent. Not to say that I wake up every morning feeling the smartest, but you just kind of start going The advantage of today right now, if you are looking to build data content as well, is that there are quite a few programs that you can get started with. You know, there's data wrappers, completely free, you just upload a CSV and it starts making charts for you. I would say in the next six to 12 months, you will run across programs where you provide the data via a CSV or an Excel spreadsheet. And then you just ask questions of that data in natural language and it builds charts for you. And I've seen some great prototypes of that from different places. So like there's going to be a an explosion of content that good-looking graphs and things. So then it gets back to if everyone can build this, what's your secret sauce? And that gets back to the questions: Are you answering things that really matter? That would be the one tip: is just don't worry about building bad stuff and get started. You know, if you go to my LinkedIn now, it may seem like everybody loves what I'm doing. If you scroll back two years, no one was there. (laughs) So I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: You were like posted
0: in the wind. More more times than you can know, Barry. Just, oh, another one that no one cared about. Tough. You just got to keep moving on it.
1: Right on. Yeah, and appreciate your sort of candor and humbleness there as well. It is a process. You and the team are like killing it at the moment. So I'm enjoying them. I'll keep sharing them. Peter, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks for sharing so candidly and so openly. So many great tips on your journey.
2: Appreciate that a lot.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's been really fun.
2: Hey everyone i hope you enjoyed that show but i'm even more delighted to share the exciting news i've recently co-founded a new venture studio named nobody studios now venture studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth and our purpose at nobody studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas we'll do this by minimizing the time speed and capital involved invalidating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years, and who knows how many beyond that. So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign. And I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.